0: Welcome to another episode of The Brain Food Show. In this one, we're continuing our theme from last episode. I believe this will be titled Amazing Animal Facts Part 2. And as I said last time, these are not your regular Amazing Animal Facts that you'll see on some list on, online where, you know... There's something and you already know it and it's boring. Yeah, that would be boring. If you missed last week's episode, it would. And they always suck.
1: Well, and, and like I, I wouldn't want to research those, like, because that's just boring. It's like why, I, like, it's even researching boring. it, it's like that's awful. I want to, I want to research things that are actually cool and interesting. Which is why,
0: which is why we stand out from the crowd. Yes. But also, yeah, those those things you've you've seen them all before. They're boring. Uh last week's episode or yesterday's episode. I I don't know when these things are released, but whatever. I was, I thought when I was, I was like, animal facts, are these going to be good? I don't know why I doubted you, man, (laughs) because then I look at this, I look at the notes and they're all stupidly good. So there's that. I still sound funny. Uh, If people are wondering why I sound funny, it's uh, because we recorded this episode about 10 minutes after we recorded the last episode. I still haven't got used to my new, uh, I'm having dental work done and I've got this thing in my mouth. So uh, I still haven't got used to it yet. It hasn't been a week. It has been ten, 10 minutes. So that's why.
1: Do You have like that in, uh, you know, people like, uh, so like famous people will get uh, insurance on random stuff like their face or something. And because you make your living talking, right? So like, do you have insurance for your voice? Like, so if like your voice, why just, did you
0: think of that right now? I, if I your literally... voice just
1: goes out, do you get insurance? So you got insurance where you're just good or whatever?
0: Um, I, I, I. This week, I have been sorting that out. Really, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's what. A, that's bizarre. Yeah. Um. It's it's very difficult to do. Uh and I, I suppose it is a major first world problem when you Google something and you just get news results. You know, <laughs> these kind of Beyonce insured her legs for ten million dollars yeah. or whatever because you're looking up how do I insure my image or my voice because yeah. if I'm in a horrible car accident and my face gets all ruined yeah. or my voice gets ruined. I won't be able to do this, uh-huh. and the problem is, I'll definitely be able to do some other job. Uh-huh. You know, but you have a transition when no one can see yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and not just the transition period, but I'm fairly sure you know I could do something that would be a highly skilled thing, yeah. but it's not going to pay very well for a long time, yeah. and I don't want to give up. You know, what I've a, a business is quite a, provides quite a nice, nice lifestyle these yeah. days, and I want to be good at you know. Mm-hmm. Something close to that level, rather than oh, you, or even if you're in a car accident or something, and you you get a bit, your brain gets a bit funny, mm-hmm. and you can't really concentrate on stuff anymore. Yeah. So yeah, I, I have been looking into insurance against really? that.
1: That'll be interesting. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Follow up later. I'll, I'll keep your posters.
0: <laughs> yeah, I want to know how that goes. It's actually very, uh, like I said, it's, it's quite, it's been quite hard to find. Yeah. A friend of mine, he knew uh, a model who I think actually did insure Alex. That's probably where I got this thing from, or she insured something. And he got something about Lloyd's of London, which is a major insurer. This was really hard to figure out. And I couldn't really, uh, you know, it's just, you want to get someone on the phone who knows about this stuff and just tell me what to do so I can write you a check. Um, It's been surprisingly
1: hard to find that person. If anyone's listening, happens to be an insurance agent. (laughs) And it'd be interesting to see like how much will that cost? Like, you know, like something like that. There's a custom plan like that. That's, you know my experience with insurance is it's always been surprisingly cheap. Yeah. yeah.
0: You know, what? Well, maybe I'll be horribly surprised uh, mm-hmm. because it's always quite a low risk of these things happening. Yeah. So, yeah. we'll see. Yeah. And I don't smoke. I don't, yeah. I don't even drive. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, very rarely. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. I'll keep you posted. Yeah. Um, Tell me should we should we crack on let's do some quick facts. Yeah, so well this is all kind of quick facts, yeah, but let's we're gonna do our introductory a, quick facts.
1: So the colossal squid, probably the most famous of all squids. Uh so the most colossal for yeah, sure. Yeah. The largest known squid in terms of mass on the earth and it turns out they have a donut-shaped brain and with their esophagus I've seen pictures of this. Yeah, with their esophagus actually runs through the hole in the center of their brain and you could think this is not uh, ideal because what if they eat something really big and they swallow it and then it just like expands their esophagus and then damages their brain that doesn't seem like a good <laughs> uh, design or uh, evolutionary trait but this this because I mean, it's small like this the the esophagus's diameter is only 10 millimeters or about 0.39 inches so less than half an inch or about you know or a centimeter uh so so i
0: i i was thinking about this right yeah. and it does seem like that is that is a you know, whoever designed that's an idiot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that engineer is fired. <laughs> oh, no, we're going to get some hate for that yeah. one. Like God designed that, and he's not an idiot. <laughs> um, I was thinking about this, right? What about us? We're pretty badly designed. Yeah. If you looked objectively at a human, I was like, wait, your food and your air <laughs> goes down the same pipe? That's true. What's up with that?
1: Yeah, it would be nice, like whales, now they have the separate track, uh,
0: but... Yes, yeah, like what if something gets stuck in yeah.
1: there? Oh, it does quite often, and we die. Yeah, that's a thing that happens. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's true. And and uh, presumably this isn't uh, a much of a problem for the colossal squid, as we'll get into momentarily. But um, yeah, it does. As you might imagine, it does have the side effect that they do have to tear up their food into very tiny little bits before they before they eat before they swallow it so that it doesn't damage their tiny little brains. And they, they do have very tiny little brains. They're only about a hundred grams is what their what their brains are, or point two two pounds. Um so they're there's they're tiny. Um so
0: I like that you put the metric first there. Yeah. Yeah. It's progress. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> So, But, the, I mean, the colossal squid is huge, so how do they do this? So they're uh, about 39 to 46 feet long, or 11.8 to 14 meters is the conversion there. Or They're just
0: constantly chewing. Yeah, or, and the
1: 1,000 to 1,500 pounds are 453 to 690 kilograms. So it turns out, though, despite their massive size, they don't actually need to eat very much at all uh because because of where they live you know it's extremely cold you know about a mile and a half down or 2.2 kilometers down uh, you know it's super cold and down there sort of southern tip of africa and throughout the antarctic um so they have actually very slow metabolisms um and so they can comfortably live turns out on about 30 grams of food per day or about 0.07 pounds is all they need now presumably they they could eat more if you know they they have it available and maybe grow bigger or whatever but um, they don't need to, even bigger. Yeah, yeah, they don't need to. It turns out the double colossal squid. Yeah, so they they it's thought from this when this was all discovered the colossalist.
0: Yeah, sorry,
1: it's it's thought that they must uh, not because they're slow metabolism and everything. They probably just mostly sit around and wait for stuff to come to them because they also don't need much food. And so probably just when something swims by, they just sort of reach out, grab it, and they have sharp hooks and stuff, so they grab grab their, with their tentacles the thing, bring it towards their little powerful beak, and then just sort of tear off little bits at a time. And this is not going to be a pleasant death, so they're taking these tiny little nips, you know, just little little bits of flesh here and there, because one yeah. of their favorite things to eat uh, is called the Patagonian toothfish, which can be 2.3 meters or 7 feet long. So this is a fairly large thing, which can feed, that uh, can sustain the colossal squid, for about two-thirds of a year, if you do the math on that, um, if they needed to. Now, presumably, they can just eat more or whatever, uh, but they can yeah. live off that for quite some time. And so you might, you're the Patagonian toothfish just sitting there. It, it's got you. You're not getting away. And they're just like, here, I'll just take a little bite, you know, like a little nibble, uh, oh, nice. and just keep nibbling, nibbling. It's going to take a while for that thing to die. Um, and just, you know, as the colossal squid's eating them. So not, not a pleasant death. But another interesting thing about the colossal squid before we move on to the to the main content... And so they have these little uh, statoliths. There's basically just these little tiny bone-like objects, things in their in their brain, and in this there's a small chamber in their brain where these these things are. And so, what does this thing do? It's quite fascinating. It is how they tell which way is up and which way is down in the ocean, depending on the orientation of these bone-like objects in the in in their little brain.
0: Work they'll float or something
1: in there, yeah. Presumably, or just gravity, gravity works, you know. Yeah, Uh, so and just that's a little sensor that's built into their brain basically to tell them which way is up and which way is down because it's just completely pitch black, you know, where they live.
0: If I'm in underwater and I'm upside down, Mm -hmm.
1: do I know that? Uh, not necessarily, no, but you can just use bubbles, just let some air out, and at least that's what they teach us in scuba diving. When I got my scuba diving license, it's just you know, exhale some bubbles and then see which way they go. Because you can. You have a scuba diving license? I do. I got in high school, actually. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Long time wow. ago. Uh, but yeah, that's exactly what you do. You just let a little air out and then see which way it goes. Because you can absolutely get, like, which way's up sometimes if it's dark or whatever. Um,
0: yeah. That's cool. Didn't know that. Yeah.
1: Yes, that's right. As always, this episode
0: of The Brain Food Show is brought to you by Wix. What do Wix do? Well, they allow you to create a website for a personal brand, a business, a wedding, Whatever else you might think of. We made it for this podcast. You've heard me talk about this before. You can find it at brainfood.fm. You can even make one of your personal brands. I'm seeing that there. I'm like, I got a website. It's not very good at simonwhistler.com. I should definitely switch that over to Wix because instantly it would just be much better just within no time at all. In fact, I'm probably going to do that so I can talk to you about another website I made with Wix in the future. The one I made for brainfood.fm, uh, it's got a podcast tool built into it. I was, when we first got started, I was like, so you guys could support podcasts? Like if we want to put all our epi- of our episodes on this Wix website, that's possible. And uh, yeah, of course it is, Simon. Just click on this box right here and you find the podcast tool. And it's in there with all of these other tools, which I don't use, but wow, they're like super advanced. You can easily set up a store, You could do, uh, if you're a photographer or you just want to share some holiday snaps on your own site, you can do it with their gallery tools. Loads of cool stuff like this. Loads of all of this technologically advanced stuff that you'd think it would take a developer ages to make. It's all easily implemented with Wix. They've got you covered for whatever you want to do. And Wix websites, they also look great on desktop. They look great on mobile automatically. I didn't even know that although I do now, when I was building it, I didn't know that the website I was making would also work on mobile instantly and easily. It's just another one of those advanced features that Wix allows you to implement. I just, look, go check out our website, BraveFoodFM. see what I made in a really short amount of time. See how good it looks and all of that good stuff. Also Wix offers unlimited pages, top grade hosting for free. You can upgrade to a premium plan if you want to for as little as $5 a month. And that gives you even more. All you need to do is go to wix.com forward slash go forward slash Again, wix.com forward slash go forward slash brain food and get started today. Or we've got a link in the, uh, the episode description. You can click that if you're feeling lazy. And let's get back to the show. So what are we talking about today? What's I mean, is it just more of more of the same? I don't want to say that in a bad way. Yeah. No. That sounds like uh, yeah more of the same. Yeah, more of the same. More, fascinating more of the
1: same great stuff. Animal facts. And we are going to start today with the dung beetle. And so you might say, what is interesting about the dung beetle? Um so beyond the fact that it does make these little, you know, round balls of dung, which is kind of fascinating, then it rolls them, you know, to go then eventually rolls them away from where it found it. So uh so the other dung, the other dung beetles don't steal its little ball of poo, uh, and then you know it uses it for re- reproductive purposes and everything. So uh, in any event, so what's what's
0: interesting? Look, I-, <laughs> I could do that. Yeah, I could roll my poo into a ball. Yeah, I don't know if I could use it for reproductive purposes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: you could. It would be weird. Um, uh, but um, so yeah, so why why what's so fascinating about this and the way they do it? It turns out. They, they roll it in a very specific way in a very straight line away from where they found it. And so, but what they do first is they do a little happy dance once they've got their little ball of poo. And it used to be thought that this was just like a little excited thing, right? I mean, maybe they're just excited they got some poo. But it turns out this is not what they're doing. They're actually taking their bearings to figure out where to go. And so what what exactly are they, are they getting from this? And so uh, it turns out dung beetles have specialized eyes that kind of you know it, it basically they can tell like light polarization direction and stuff so their eyes aren't very mm-hmm. good but they can see so so like they couldn't see like little uh pinpricks of light or whatever like a star but they can see you know like more just like in general like if the sun they can they can do this so this it was thought okay so they're using the sky to navigate right so and it turns out when some studies yes like when the sun's up they they are definitely using the sun to navigate, and they're using this little dance to sort of orient themselves, and then they you know and then they go on their merry way. But what about at night? Because at night they can still navigate, but like I just said, their eyes aren't good enough to see stars in general. So it was naturally assumed, okay, they they must it must be using the moon, it's gotta be the moon. right? Yeah. And so to test this hypothesis, um, there's researchers uh, led by one Mary Dack uh, looked to see are they using the moon. And so they they set up this little um little arena. Uh, in, in mini, you know, dung beetle arena in South Africa, and they kind of blocked out views of of, of everything but the sky, so that definitely they're only looking at the sky, they're not using any other references. Um, and then they wanted to see how long it took them to cross the arena when they have their little poo balls. So they they tested different conditions, one with the moon out, with no moon, and then with an overcast sky and see... see how they reacted to this. And so, oh, and they also, uh, adorable little cardboard caps for some of them. So they, so some of them couldn't see the sky at all. Uh, uh. They put on them. And so this, this, this is yeah. what they're looking at. And it turns out the dung beetles had a tough time uh, staying in a straight line when there were clouds. Uh, and if they were wearing the caps. so definitely they're using something in the sky, whether moon or what. So were they using the moon? And it turns out that no, they were not using the moon. Uh, instead, they must've been using something else. Uh, But of course, all that's left is the stars, but they don't have good enough eyesight to see individual stars to navigate. So uh, as Dax said, we thought
0: they could be using the stars for orientation, but dung beetles have such small eyes that they don't have the resolution or sensitivity to see individual stars.
1: So they decided then to do a new experiment. Uh, So let's Mm -hmm. look. And so they took the the little arena to a planetarium where they can control the stars and see what would happen. Truman Show. Yeah uh so they yeah, they put them in there and so they showed the beetles uh the brightest stars so showed that on the planetarium mm-hmm. and then they showed also just the general milky way the whole milky way so that's up and then they just showed the entire sky not just the milky way part of it but just the entire sky and see what the results were it turns out when they when they're looking at just the brightest stars visible they were able to cross the arena but very slowly um and not quite as like a straight line like normal and um when they when it showed the whole milky way uh, then they crossed at normal speed, like nothing, perfect straight line, like they always do. And when they show the whole sky, also nice, perfect, just like they do. So it turns out all they're needing is the Milky Way, and that is exactly how they're navigating: is just by looking up and then orienting themselves to the Milky Way itself. Um, and then there was a, further experiments were done and also confirmed that a different type of uh, dung beetle also. Did the same thing. Uh, with, they just needed the Milky Way to navigate, and that's what they were using. And that makes them the first known insects to use the stars to navigate outside of our sun, which we'll get into momentarily. It turns out a few different creatures use the sun to navigate, um, which we're going to get into the, the honeybee thing shortly. But that's just, I don't know, kind of fascinating. The little dung beetle doing its little happy dance, looking up at the Milky Way, and then navigating by it. Yeah. I, it,
0: and the Milky Way's not usually like, I you rarely see the Milky Way. You really got to be out yeah, in yeah. I mean, well, they
1: there in super clear in Africa, no, of nowhere. And the dung beetle in Africa. So yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, away from city lights and all that. Uh, quite apparent when you are like where I grew up um, in the absolute middle of nowhere. Uh, you could you could definitely see it. <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah,
0: because you grew up in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, as
1: long as there wasn't a moon. And I mean, that's the amazing thing, though, when you do live in the middle of nowhere like that uh so at night you do look up there's the milky way it's quite apparent and also though on a full moon it is insane how bright it is out so your eyes just are adjusting more because there's Mm. not the you know city lights or whatever all the light sources everywhere so you just i mean you can see you don't need flashlight or nothing you can just see like all around almost like daytime but everything's in black and white type of thing uh it's quite quite interesting but um going camping next month i'm rather looking forward to Where, where are you going
0: because I, I live in the city, yeah. I just don't see stars. You just do oh, not see stars yeah. at all. Yeah,
1: that's unfortunate.
0: Um, yeah, it is. Um, oh no, nowhere particular. Just going to the forest. Nice. Going to just do, you know, have a campfire. I imagine
1: in Europe, it would be harder to walk in. Harder to get away from like all major sources of light, or like very far away.
0: When when I was growing up, yeah, it was a. Was this this week's episode or last episode we were talking about? Populations, Australia and stuff.
1: <laughs> like, <laughs> no, actually, that was before we even started recording. <laughs>
0: okay, um we were David and I were privately talking then about uh how we were surprised Australia only has twenty five million it, people because it's really it big. was because
1: of the time where we record is the only English speaking country that's really awake is um Australia, right. and we were like, for the live stream, it's like that's gonna be great. We're gonna get those sweet, sweet Australian views, and then we we're looking, it's only like twenty four million people total. So, yeah. <laughs>
0: Damn it. Uh, where was I going with that? Oh yeah, po- uh, so population density and stuff and getting away from light sources. Uh, and when we were talking about Australia, before we started talking, I was talking about my friend who lives in Montana and he's like, there's no one there. He lives in Prague as well. And my thing about Czech, Czech Republic is, I guess about half the size of Britain and it only has 10 million people, whereas the UK has 70 million. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot more population dense. Mm-hmm. And I quite like it. You can, you know, go out into the forest and stuff and there's just endless forest. There's loads of forest. Yeah. There's loads of fields. It's nice and empty. And so my friend from Montana is like, what are you talking <laughs> about? This is incredibly densely populated. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, no, it's not. Yeah. So I really like it here. It's, yeah. you know, it's nice that there's so much nature and stuff.
1: But I once drove yeah. uh, near where I used to live well, one time. It was a night, granted drove, uh, I want to say two hours straight without encountering another car on the highway, going either way, because uh, so, it was what? a two, yeah.
0: How is that highway actually <laughs> viable?
1: <laughs> it's, I mean, in the daytime, you will, like, every five or ten minutes encounter another car or whatever, but in the, in the you know, starting to get into the evening, there's nothing. Just driving along.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah, I know. Even though America what, 300-some million people? Yeah, but it's big, so... It's real big. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: anyway, uh, well, we're well, going we... to move on to the thing we teased last week: um, honeybees. So, how do they? Their little uh, mathematical abilities that are quite remarkable. Uh, so ah. it turns out, honeybees use a sort of dance to communicate, and humans have translated this dance so we know what they're saying. Um, it, it's not really that complicated the, the what they're saying, but um, what how they what they're doing in their heads is quite complicated uh, to do this. So. So they find a new source of food or whatever, and then the honeybee will come back and it'll do its little dance to communicate this to the other bees, you know, like where exactly is this thing? Uh, And it turns out uh, there was a study done with like a mountain in the way to see. Um, Mm -hmm. So just the, the first part, so this study, in order for the honeybees to get to the source... What they had to do was fly around the mountain. They couldn't fly up over it, but the angle that they gave was the direct as if you were flying over the mountain. And yet the other honeybees were able to do the math in their head of the curvature of that, plus, you know, you know, to and the distance and do the math to translate that, okay, so if you went straight to it, if there wasn't a mountain in the way, that's that distance, right? But they, they can't do that, so they have to go around. So the honeybees that would then go subsequently find it had to do the math in their head for the curvature and then translate that what would the distance be then to get there and they could do it just fine. Um and this is not the most impressive part of this. Uh, Wait, that's pretty crazy. No, it gets better. Way better. <laughs> okay. So, they're doing this little dance so uh, so they they find the good source and they they come back and uh, and so they 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 basically do it by turning in circles uh, is the start so they'll they'll stand on their little little thing, and they'll turn the circles, and they'll bisect this every now and again uh, with an angle. And this gives them, the other, how they're doing this is giving them the angle relative to the sun. This is what they're translating. So they're, they're giving them the angle relative to the sun. So although other bees are watching, they're like, okay, got it. The sun's there. Uh, you just told me the angle. And so this this is where it gets even better. The problem is, of course, so when they were flying there and they come back, They're giving him the angle, right? So you think, well, the sun's moving, right? I mean, I'm not really, but the Earth is rotating and all this is happening. And it turns out the B comes back, translates that given the time that's passed... They translate it in their head, and then they give them the angle right now. Like, if you were to leave right now, this is the way, this is the angle you go. But the other thing is, this dance can take a long time to communicate effectively. So, what happens is then the bees... They adjust for that, and
0: the, the movements of the sun.
1: Yeah, the bees that go out... No! Then adjust for where the sun is now. They say, okay, this much time has passed... Now the angle is going to be different, and so then then they'll do it as their flight to translate to where it would be now versus where it was later. Because some some of these dances can take a super long time, so the sun can actually move quite a bit, and they they do this madness. They do this this calculating the different angles in their head and uh, and going, and of course they're also communicating the distance. Uh, as well and it turns out they're doing this by wiggling their abdomens uh, while they're crossing the circle so they do these wiggles more wiggles is more distance and how what measurement they're using i mean who knows uh, but they definitely know because it's very precise the the measurements they go uh if it's something far away they'll they'll do this wiggling and it turns out if if something's pretty close like within about 80 meters or so they they won't do the wiggles they'll just give the direction and you'll, you'll you know go this way you'll find it eventually type of thing uh, mm-hmm. You'll you'll encounter it, but if it's really far away, then they'll then they'll give the exact distance to it uh, to this food source, uh, which is quite fascinating. So they're doing this all this this you know complicated little uh, geometry and trigonometry in their head, and and also very good timekeeping ability to be able to tell how the angle is going to change as time goes on, and like I don't know could you do that in your head i don't think i could do that in my head like really dude i can barely keep (laughs) up with what you're saying yeah i actually actually do what's funny is i actually (laughs) originally did specific examples from this one research paper that shows exactly like exactly so they're you know where they bisect the circle means this and this uh and and i was like well that's just too complicated on a podcast form you need like a visuals for it Uh, so i cut that out and just went with the high level high level view of it which is you know I think uh, it's
0: super impressive. yeah how impressive Crazy. it is still
1: still comes across um, but yeah so the, the bees they can definitely you know do like and and I mean they're also having to calculate you know they you, because they know the sun's oh oh I left out the most interesting part here's <laughs> get this okay get this now now say it's nighttime right so they finished their little dance but now it's nighttime yeah. the sun's not up right they know that mm-hmm. they know where the sun is relative to right now. Uh, And so that later they can then do that. So they actually do the angle of where the sun is on the other side of the earth. And so then when they go flying out to do that, you know, the next day or whatever, they'll calculate, they'll do that calculation. So they're also like some concept of the earth being round is in there like hardwired into their brain because they'll actually do where the sun would be on the other side of the earth at that time, the exact angle, uh, which is just insane.
0: So the sun will go all the way around. All the, Well, yeah, the, no, Earth the sun is, won't yeah, go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in our little Earth-centric bee mines. Yeah. 'll they'll, they'll imagine the sun going
1: around the earth and they know what angle it is on even though it's dark out they know where it would be like where it should be on the other side of the earth and so that later they can translate it to where then go find the source once the time is passed you know they, again they're using okay this much time has passed now the sun will be here and so you know they can use it so once they do becomes, the catch
0: up math the next day yeah
1: once the sun is visible again they uh, can craziness. yeah they can use it as their navigation reference point again once it's daytime which is just crazy that it I mean clearly it's hardwired into their brain somehow. Uh, to do all this math and stuff, a little but amazing. Pretty incredible. Yeah, but now we're going to move on to an even more incredible, because bees are, are super interesting. There's a lot more interesting things about them, but ants, ants are even more so, and we're going to start with the, uh, I mean, I don't know, this one's not just like an impressive thing. It's just sort of interesting. So it turns out there are some, uh, so, you know, like honeybees use their, you know, they use their little combs to, to store the honey and everything, but certain species yeah. of ants actually instead use the bodies of other ants to do this and not just and they're usually uh, large larger bodied ones but it's not just as you think okay well they're storing some some food in there w- big deal right like all ants can do this they have like two stomachs and one of them's for the colony and one for that but these certain types can actually do it they're called like honeypot uh, ants and what they do is their body actually swells up so they so once it's designated this is going to be a honeypot ant for for food storage so they're <laughs> they're sitting there and they're usually very central to the the little you know nest or whatever uh just for protection because there are actually a lot of creatures uh like the honey badger and stuff know about these things and will dig and try to get them uh because it is just like honey basically it's a really sweet tasting nectar but they'll actually get so much food that their abdomen swells up to about the size of like a grape uh and so you just have like this like this ant this tiny little ant with a just massive you know it's like morbidly obese basically uh, ah. Have you seen pictures of this? Did you yes. look these up? Yeah, I have. and they d- Dude, it's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's
0: more crazy than you think. Yeah. Like, I, I had imagined this in my mind. And I was like, oh, so okay. So it's a little bit weird looking.
1: No, it's like a little yes. grape. It does. And and humans also, like Native American tribes and Aborigines and stuff, actually used to use, I don't know, maybe still do. I don't know. Uh, the They used to just, you know, you harvest these things. Uh, you can just like dig them out. And then there's all these ants food stores. And they are. It's like, <laughs> yeah. imagine just like this super sweet nectar and you just bite off the end, you know? Uh, and it's like a grape, you know, just eating it. Um, so yeah, so, and as they're swelling up and stuff, they they inevitably can't move anymore because they're just so massive. Uh, and so, and so these worker ants are constantly bringing them more and more stuff to, to, these honeypot ants, more stuff to store for just, you know, times when food's scarce or whatever. And so they're bringing them to and they're swelling up and eventually they can't move and it doesn't really matter because the the path in and out of the, the ant nest is, is, they're not big enough. So they're kind of trapped where they are um mm-hmm. so they just keep swelling larger and larger and to retreat
0: these things can't they they couldn't
1: move no, anyway no, they're looking no, they're those
0: mi- yeah. that's yeah they're not going anywhere. no and so you know what'd be cool when we could when we live stream by the way uh-huh. is i reckon we can throw up images when we're doing these yeah and not yeah that would be cool yeah um, um, anyway so it's side night to retrieve <laughs> the food. Right.
1: So how do they actually get the food out of it? Turns out the worker ants will come and they stroke the antenna in a certain way and that will cause the honeypot ants to regurgitate a little bit of the liquid for the other ant to then other worker ant to either eat themselves or they can take it and distribute it wherever it's needed to like the queen or whatever. Because um, again, mm-hmm. like the ants have the, the two stomachs. So they have one that they use for themselves and one for storing stuff. So pretty much all ants can do this to some <laughs> just level. Just give it a little tickle and it yeah. throws off. <laughs> give, give, give me some of that sweet, sweet nectar. Blech. Take that to the queen. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this is this is what they do. But the honeypot <laughs> ants are special just because of the size that they can get. Um, Just massive, just swelling and swelling. So that's just uh, one of many fascinating facts about ants. And I thought we'd cover many today because there are way more interesting things so to start with you know one of the more boring ones but kind of interesting uh, so you have soldier ants so these are worker ants they can collect food like any other ant but they can also attack they will sometimes will attack enemy colonies and they'll steal some of the eggs from the colonies right and then take them back to their own colony and then they the once they are all you know now they're little ants and they use them as lifelong slaves They literally use them for tasks like collecting food, building the anthill, taking care of eggs and all this. And it turns out the Amazon ant, particularly, they're unable, the hive itself is unable to sustain itself without slave ants. They need the slaves to basically do these tasks that they don't do. There's there's definitely a joke there about Amazon and minimum wage. (laughs) I'm not sure what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Oh, and so moving on to something slightly more interesting, uh, suicide bomber ants. These are actually a mm-hmm. thing in some type of ant. Uh, so basically what happens with these ants is when they encounter enemy enemies, whatever they've determined is, a, is something that's a threat to their colony. They will literally explode. And this causes little chemicals to basically cover the enemies around them. And it gets it's very sticky and then it dries and it's it completely immobilizes, you know, other small insects and things. Uh, which will then cause them to die, but it just also, I mean, the suicide bomber ant also dies in the process, but perhaps taking out several enemy invaders at the same time. Wow. And so the also another type... I didn't
0: see any video, I didn't I didn't look this up, I should have looked that up, that sounds there must be a video yeah, of this, right?
1: Did you look it up? I did a long time ago, I have not seen a video but I do remember seeing a video of it um, quite interesting. Yeah. So then there's another type called the Phorelius Pusillus uh, ant, mm. and these ants, also they have ants that will sacrifice themselves but in a very different way than the Suicide bomber ants. So they have the the nest at night needs sealed off every night to make it basically the whole point of this to make it undetectable from the outside. So you can't tell that there's a nest there at all. So the predators will just pass that area by. And so what they do is it seems like it's the sick and old ants volunteer in some way or are tasked with this somehow. However, they're, they're doing it, deciding who goes out. And so they're just little mm. sacrificial ants. They will go out, they will seal the entrance and then uh, they will, you know, go on their merry way and die. Uh, and researchers have tried to collect these and then see what happens. Will they, will they stay alive if we actually take care of them or whatever? And they, they usually don't. They usually die. <laughs> take them to like ant hospital. Yeah. <laughs> they usually die pretty quickly after, which is where the idea that they must be like just the older ants or sick ants must be chosen for this task because they don't live very long once this is done. So that But yeah, they're just sacrificing themselves for the good of the colony. And then another interesting one, uh, speaking of entrances and ants, there's gatekeeper ants. Uh, this one <laughs> type of ant, the cylindricus ant. Uh, so it has, some of the ants have these flattened, they have these like flattened heads, right? So they go and they block the entrance to the nest. They're literally like gatekeepers. Like you can't get in or out and to, to get with their head. Yeah. With their head. So they're just sitting there with their head. That's all they're doing is blocking. And so if you want to get in, or if you want to get in your, you're an ant that's outside and you want to get it back in, you have to basically, they use their antennas to identify themselves. And then if the ant decides, oh yeah, you're a member of our colony, they'll move aside, let the ant in. And then they go back to blocking the entrance once again.
0: It's like a living door. Yeah,
1: just kind of cool. Um, and then yeah. we have the Catalacus kata, muticus, mood, sure. Uh, worker ants. <laughs> yeah. These are not even
0: going to try. Yeah,
1: these ones are interesting because if there's excess water, like if there's flooding in their nest, they will all start, you know, ingesting it and then they walk out and then spit it out, which, I mean, that's kind of cool but not super interesting. But what's really interesting is there's other type of ants that will make rafts instead. Like if, if flooding starts to happen or it's just like rain, they will make rafts and then float around on these rafts. And this seems to be probably why pretty much every ha- habitable island on the planet is has ants, you know. Um, so that's probably how that happened. Because oh. they made little boats, oh, yeah. boats, and then they're just floating around, spreading spreading around. Um, but that, that's what they do in response to flooding and things like this. So kind of interesting. And so this, this gets us back to similar to the honeybees, like how do ants find their way around. So this mm-hmm. is quite interesting. So they use... A variety of methods. It depends on the type of ant, obviously, but in general, so you have like pheromone trails and and stuff like that is a big one. Um, but if it's lost or weak, they actually some ants actually have the ability to communicate. So it's very similar to bees. The exact location in really complex ways, similar to the bees. Um, so to begin with, they can they actually seem to use landmarks, uh, distances, and direction um, to to sort of <laughs> communicate this. And um, some some type of ants actually have seem to have the ability to detect the Earth's magnetic field and use that as a reference in navigation. Uh, and also the sun, again, very similar to the bees, they use the sun. And so they communicate. I feel like we got
0: shafted on all these <laughs> yeah. cool abilities. Yeah. Like, I wish I could sense the Earth's magnetic field. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah that, I just rely on Google Maps and it's not always awesome. There's some type of bird. I can't remember the type of bird, a robin or something that actually. It's a robin, yeah, yeah with
0: one eye that can sense it. Yeah,
1: they can actually see the magnetic
0: field oh, of the Earth. So cool. Yeah. Kind of cool, but so I want a robin's eye. Why can't I have a robin's eye? Yeah,
1: it would be kind of cool. But you have it, it, they seem to communicate with gestures, but not just gestures. This is the really cool one. Also, noises produced by their mandibles. So they're literally communicating with noises. They're talking to each other, they're talking to each other, (laughs) which is kind of scary when you look at all this cool stuff ants can do, and their biomass is basically the same as humans on Earth. Oh, uh, yeah. you add them all up. Uh, as soon as as soon as they get giant, I'll stop being afraid <laughs> of them. Yeah. yeah. So another interesting thing is, so when they're communicating, though, the ants actually they have to convince the other ants to stop what they're doing and come help come help me. I found this cool food source you guys it's really cool you should all come check it out you know so that's what they do so but the other ants you know they're busy with their own jobs and so they have to be really convincing so it seems that they can also not just tell them you know what direction and where to go and use all these landmarks and references and pheromones and everything but they also seem to be able to communicate exactly how much food is available on the other side so if it's enough to stop what they're doing depending on what else is going on the other ants will more more of the other ants will then go and, you know, help out. And they seem in this way, it it makes it very efficient for only sending enough ants. So like not all the ants will just suddenly drop what they're doing and going like they seem, however, their little brains work to know, okay, that's a great amount of food. And so we'll send this many ants. We'll just be convinced to go, you know, however their brains do it. Uh, And then depending on the needs of the colony at the time, and then they'll they'll all go and, and find the path. And so it turns out ants are super efficient at this, at finding the most efficient path. And that's a really difficult problem in mathematics and computer science. So like, I mean, you think of like Google mm-hmm. Maps or something, uh, it turns out you can't get the best solution. Like it's just even like with supercomputers and stuff. Uh, if you're talking about like, a like if you want to go, you know, a couple hundred miles away or something, what's the most efficient route to do that? Uh, and it turns out that's a really hard problem to solve uh, algorithmically and with the computational uh, power. I won't get into the exact there, but uh, just it's really hard uh, and you can't it's get interesting. It. I never thought about yeah, it. And like companies like UPS or like uh, airline, like this is a big problem. Like because if they can just even get like 1% more efficient at their paths, like this is saves a oh, lot yeah. of money. So there's a lot of money in finding efficient paths. And so what, what like Google Maps and stuff does is actually they do kind of a best guess type, like a best estimate type thing, Mm -hmm. um, in their algorithms. So you can't, you can't be, basically the problem is you can't be sure that you have the best one, the best route or whatever. And so if you can just get like a slightly more efficient algorithm, maybe you're going to save like millions of dollars if you're UPS or even, you know, billions over a big enough span. So this is a big problem. So ants have been studied because they're really good at finding the most efficient path. And this brings us to the towers of Hanoi math puzzle that Uh, you teased earlier. So this This is great. This is just one of many studies that have been done looking at so um, that one you know you you move the discs from one rod to the next sort of thing uh, but of course ants can't I mean that's not really the way they did it with they them not physically move yeah them. so they just sort of made a version of this puzzle that ants could do in basically finding the shortest path and to to the solution um, so the ants it turns out when this this study they were doing had thirty two thousand seven hundred and sixty eight possible paths to choose from but only two paths presented the optimal solution in this study, right? So that, that's a lot. And it turns out, with this 32,768 possible paths and only two possible, they solved it, the ants solved it in under an hour to find the optimal path to, to this thing. And then, so once they did find the optimal path, the researchers then blocked the path to see what, what were the ants doing at first. Will they figure out the other one? Yeah, will they figure out now there's another optimal path or will they just go around the thing? And at first they did just go around the obstacle and keep going. But by going around the obstacle, it now made it the not optimal path. And within an hour of that, they managed to discover that there was a new optimal path uh, that they should then take. Uh, So something in their brains, they didn't just keep going the suboptimal path, you know, in the way they explore and things like this. Uh, Hmm. Eventually quite quickly discovered that there was a new route that was a better path. And so that was the one that was established. And uh, this is just one of many studies that look at ANTs and their, their way they, you know, they come up with the optimal paths to things and all that. And it turns out this has actually been used in practical applications uh, looking at ANTs, some of their algorithms that have come up with uh, for like vehicle routing, like we we're saying, like UPS or these sorts of things. And protein folding problems this is another one. Um, there's actual real practical applications to being able to do these things slightly more efficiently. And like one of my computer science professors said, if you can, like even like you're talking like Netflix and Amazon. If you can get an ad to do it. Yeah, no. Well, he was just like, if you can literally get, you know, slightly more for, at the time Netflix had like a million dollar prize or something. This was in the early days for if you could get like 1% more efficient, you could, uh, with their recommendation engine. Um, because it is one of these type of problems. Uh, this is just not easily solved by uh, algorithmically. And uh, if you could just get one more 1% more efficient, they would give you like a million, it was like a million dollar prize or something like that. But that is Whoa. like pennies, because an airline would pay you, you know, or UPS would pay you so much more uh, to get like the, you uh, yeah. know, if you could make their algorithms for, you know, scheduling flights and thing and optimal use of an airport. Um, you know, uh, and their and planes and stuff, just slightly more efficient. This is like hundreds of millions of dollars type of thing. So, but turns out it's kind of hard. So, but there's a lot of research in ants. Uh, ants is one of them that is studied um, for practical purposes. So another interesting thing about ants. They oh yeah interactively, they've been observed to interactively teach each other skills as well. So like the, for one example, the Temnothorax albopenus ants, they have been observed. So the foragers, when you're a new forager, they you 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 tag along with a experienced forager, and they sort of they've been observed basically showing them the ropes of how to forage and and do this stuff. So they're kind of you know teaching the skills to the to the young, the new next generation. This this feels
0: after we just found out that they could solve like logistics problems for large companies. Yeah. The fact that they can learn now. I'm yeah. now I'm kind of like uh, ah, yeah. they can just learn.
1: Yeah. They can't do it with their thoughts. Yeah well it's disappointed (laughs) the individual ants are quite stupid it's really the the whole nest that's the colony that's quite intelligent in their behavior uh the individual ones of course have these you know whatever hardwired in their brain to do different things but then when you look at the whole colony they do quite complex tasks um and so speaking of like an individual ant and sort of an interesting thing this one might be something people have heard of before i just think it's still quite interesting oh
0: yeah i knew this one it is creepy
1: it's it's how you know like precise it is so you have the parasitic fungus i don't know you want to give that one a go uh
0: opfio Unilateralis. Yeah, that was
1: good (laughs) good thanks yeah (laughs) i have no idea if it was correct (laughs) that sounded really convincing so yeah they will it will it's a fungus that just sort of infiltrates the ant's body and you know releases some chemicals in the ant and this will cause it to wander away from the colony and then not just wander away but it specifically seeks out a perch that is approximately 25 centimeters from the ground and at a favorable angle to the sun. And once it finds this, it will then lock its mandibles onto the object, you know, like a leaf or a twig or whatever. (laughs) And then at some point, of course, it will die and the fungus will continue to grow and then from its head and then send off spores and, and infect other ants. But this is the cool thing is apparently the other ants seem to be able to know when like they have, there's an infected ant here. And this is going to wipe out the whole colony if they're Getting nearby. Here. Yeah, and that's exactly what they do. They will grab that ant and they will take it away, uh, away from the colony if they if it's detected that this weird ant is you know has a weird behavior or whatever. Um, and they get if right. you haven't seen if you haven't seen the
0: pictures of these ants with this weird thing growing out of their head. Yeah, it's uh it's in, it's like, yeah definitely worth looking at. I think there's even like time lapse vi- time videos of this
1: happening. It's yeah. it's creepy. Yeah. Um, full level creepy. So that is, there's lots of other interesting things about ants. Ants are super fascinating, but we've talked enough about ants. We should move on to speaking of sort of a parasitic thing. So we have, um, there is a parasite. So if, if you go, it, uh, resides, I think it's actually spread a little bit. I saw something about like in near Britain or something. It's now been mm-hmm. found in, with fish. Um, but in any event, uh, in the Gulf of California or around that area is where it, uh, it can be commonly found and so this tiny is basically uh simotha exuga well yep sure 100% correct yeah basically what this thing does so it gets in a fish's mouth however it gets in there and then the female will uh so the male will actually attach behind the gills but the female will latch on the base of the fish's tongue and then what will happen it will use its little like suckers or claws or whatever to suck the blood for the tongue basically takes the tongue's blood supply away. and it's just making sure the tongue's not getting any blood supply. The tongue will eventually die and just detach uh, from the fish. And then when this happens, the little the little parasitic thing will then reattach to the tongue stub that's there now. And then it becomes mm. its replacement. And it not just like this, I mean, the fish still needs its tongue for doing stuff. And so now the parasite is the tongue and it will use, and the fish can oh, just... Oh, I hate all this stuff. Oh, hey, you look at the pictures of this. It's so... Oh, I know, I've seen so the pictures, it's horrible. Or, yeah, it's and it's like, they look little happy. They're little like the happy little parasites. They look like yeah. little smiling things with their little, you can see their eyes and everything. Uh, and sometimes there's more than one in there, uh, like the male and the female and all it is. Yeah. So, and, but the fish can use this, like, it seems to have no negative effect. The fish just use the parasite as its tongue, as normal. Uh, And this is good for the parasite, because then the fish is going to live longer that way. Um, Yeah, so just using, it's a little replacement tongue that's a parasite. And so, just go ahead, everyone, just Google that. that, uh, I'm glad we don't have this. Yeah. Like, there's no parasite out there that causes our
0: tongue to drop off and replace it.
1: I like tasting. They do have that one, the cat one, that's in the cat poo sometimes. That actually does seem to affect human behavior. Uh, makes uh, something to do with like, rape. Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah, I can't remember the name of it. This I did not put that one in the notes. I thought to put maybe put that, but it didn't. I don't know. Didn't seem as interesting. Th- no, no. I, we, I, let's just not scare people so much. Yeah, cat poo. It's in your brain. Terrifying. I do remember there's something if you're pregnant that's like a major bad one to get that that parasite. But and it resides in your brain forever. It's not going anywhere. Um. So once you oh. got it, and it does seem to affect behavior mildly. So, you know. I think it's something to do with yeah. the temper or something. I don't remember. Either way.
0: I, I Yeah, there, there was like, it would, yeah. Yeah, yeah I remember it. we could to follow up on this. Yeah.
1: Uh, either way, so moving on through other fish. So this one's just funny. There. So there's school swimming.
0: I'm glad we have something a bit lighter. This is the last one, right? Yeah, I'm glad yeah. we're finishing on this. So the school swimming <laughs> well, here. Rather than the tongue parasites and the, the parasite that grows oh, yeah. out of the pi- head.
1: The picture is really, I mean, if you're just talking about it, it's like, yeah, that's a little horrifying. But if you just go look at the picture, it's like, oh, no, um, that's Mm-mm. not right. Um, so yeah, so school swim, swimming herring. Apparently, it would seem they use their farts to communicate. So I, and this is this is the really funny part. So the scientists who who discovered this, I use my fart to communicate. Yeah, it's like I want I want to be left alone. Yeah, the the scientists. <laughs> this part of the bus is just for me <laughs> because of how rapid these little ticking fart sounds are in these fish. Uh, they called them officially fast repetitive tick sounds. Which if you do the uh, acronym Fat. for that is FERTS. Oh, uh, Oh, no. <laughs> this is literally what the scientists called it. Um, so, uh, as it said in the... This sounds like something your government would come up with. Yeah, uh, just some researchers. Uh, so, the, <laughs> they it's a burst of about 7 to 65 pulses, lasting around a half second to about 8 seconds is what, what these pulses do. And so, the, these high frequency FERTS are admitted there. They are very high frequency, which is uh, critical to a point we will get to momentarily. But, um, so... Uh, it was, okay, so they're doing this. Why are they doing this? Oh, and it should be noted, they get this by filling their swim bladders and then doing that rather than, you know, digestive food type thing. Um, so mm-hmm. they, that's where they're getting the air from. But so it's like, why, why are they, 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 what are they doing this for? What are they saying? They seem to be communicating, but what are they saying when they do this? So the researchers were looking at stuff. So they uh, introduced like little disturbances and potential predators like shark, shark odor and stuff like that. This didn't have any effect, nothing. It didn't seem to affect the furts. Uh, so it didn't seem like they were <laughs> alarm calls of anything, uh, and so and nobody it didn't seem to be involved in mating in any way. It didn't affect that, so it wasn't that. But it turns out these herring, even in the dark, can do these like very coordinated uh, the way they where they they like a shoal in a in a in a grid pattern and stuff. Um, so yeah. and so they, and like equidistant from each other, and so they seem to be able to know how to do this even in the dark, so they can't see each other. And so that seems to be what they're doing is communicating sort of position and stuff like that. And so this is why the high frequency thing comes into play is because they do it at very high frequencies um, and this is uh, outside of the, above around two kilohertz. And this is outside of the auditory range of a lot of predators, uh, predator fish. And so it seems like they're communicating Mm -hmm. position and stuff like that, like in the dark and things like this uh, by these, these FERTs, as the the researchers called it, FRTs. Um, And so, the stuff scientists get up to. Yeah, this this <laughs> like, uh, Ben Wilson, Lawrence. What's your research area? Fish farting. And not just one. It was let's see one, two, three, four, five researchers. Ben Wilson, Lawrence Still, Robert Batty, Magnus Wahlberg, and Hakan Westberg. They were honored for this uh, uh, for a Ig Nobel Prize in Biology in 2004 <laughs> for, of course, the achievement in science that makes people first laugh but then actually think. So yeah, yeah, you know, one of the many. Uh, my favorite is the one with the, the stripper ovulating, where the researchers determine that strippers earn more when they're ovulating in tips than when they're not. And it's not actually clear uh, why. Like, is it some sort of like a, like a, is there actually like some sort of like a thing that the males are picking up on? Or is it just that the woman when she's ovulating is maybe more into her job or something uh, as a stripper? <laughs> uh, like, it, it's not clear why, it's not clear what, why they're actually getting like one of those things or maybe both, but it's definitely, they earn, okay, I don't remember now off the top of my head what the percentage was, but it's a marked difference in tips, um, increase in tips when they're ovulating versus when they're not. Oh, and the fascinating thing too was uh, when they are, uh, if they're on the birth control pill, which uh, a, a version that would stop them from ovulating, they, yeah. they don't earn more in tips. Um, oh no. So, yeah. It's fascinating. Yes. And the research... <laughs> Lessons for strippers. Yeah, but just the fact that this was like a research progress pro, pro, project by... Project. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Paid to, at a university somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Was that a, was that it? Is that is that yeah. our last fact today? Yep. I don't have any feedback. Uh, people who were listening last week know that we recorded, or last episode, know that we recorded this episode and the last episode back to back. So... I still don't know why horses sleep standing up, but at some point in the future, if they sleep standing up, at some point in the future, we're going to answer that. Mm -hmm. Well, highly anticipated question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also did the reviews last time that we got. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't. Oh, I also realized that the last time we did a review, it was actually from June the 2nd because I sorted them in the wrong order. I Mm -hmm. sorted them from most helpful. Mm -hmm. Rather than most recent, so I could do one. Uh, you ready? Sure. Always interesting and often fascinating. Kate Cat one one three eight says, "I started with the Today I Found Out YouTube channel. Always well researched and well presented. I love listening to Simon and Davin. Uh, and like I said in the title, they are always investing. I guess she means interesting. Although I don't know. Are you investing? <laughs>
1: well, yes. Uh, this podcast is yeah. quite expensive, so we're investing quite a bit." And time, and time often, more, than, more than anything.
0: Um, yeah, the time investment is pretty significant. Yeah. Uh, and often fascinating. Keep up the great work. Uh, Dr. Freedom says, Great show. Found it from you on Today I Found Out. Top tens and biographics. Those are the YouTube channels. Today I Found Out. Go check out those other ones as well. Uh, how's that? Good. Should we wrap it up? Sounds good. Cool. Um, nice to talk to you. hmm There'll be a genuine break between this one and the next episode. Yeah, so that'll be nice. We can find out about the horse problem. Yeah, or solution, or it's not either of these things. We'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. Good to talk to you. See you soon.
1: Blech, take that to the queen. <laughs>